0: It makes me very, very happy and it helps the channel grow. And feel free to tell your friends, your family, your pets, whoever you want to share this with and let's work out together. Hello, team, and welcome back to the Simply Fit Podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dre Baldwin. Dre is a former professional athlete turned author, public speaker, entrepreneur, and coach. Dre is an extremely straight talker. He's been in the personal development space for longer than most of the gurus that you'll come across today and offers a huge amount of value through the content he provides. In this conversation, you can expect to learn whether you should be working hard or working smart, how to know if you're a star in the making or if you need to be reassessing your current effort levels and how you can truly do what you want versus what you think you should be doing based on the expectations of society and social media. So without further ado
1: trey baldwin trey baldwin welcome to the show how are you today i'm doing excellent elliot thank you for having me on excited for this conversation likewise and my pleasure so
0: i want to get started with your backstory however i know that there's a lot of places we can get that but if you could cover maybe some of the key points in your story up until where you are today that would be an amazing place for us to start and then we can dive into more of the deeper stuff
1: Man, well, there's been a lot of key points, but if I had to condense it down to two minutes, I'll say uh, I come from the city of Philadelphia, now in South Florida. I wanted to play basketball, but didn't make my team in high school until I was a senior. I was kind of a late bloomer in sports. Walked on to play in college. Uh, Finished college, wanted to play pro, but I didn't have any prospects because I'd only played division three. So it's not like anybody was beating down my door looking for me. So I had to kind of hustle my way into pro basketball, which I was, fortunately, I was able to do that. Uh, That started a 10 year pro basketball career. It was an up and down career was meant sometimes I didn't have a job. It's kind of like being an actor or actress, like you're in between gigs. It was like that for me sometimes. And in the gaps of my career, that's when I started doing what we now call building a personal brand. But There was no such thing as building a personal brand in 2006. So this, I kind of stumbled into this. And then when it became a thing, I already had a little bit of runway, a little bit of traction. So that is how I really got started you know, writing a lot online, blogging, which became you know, a lot of books that I've written. I've written 29 books to date. Publishing content online. That's the thing that a lot of people know me from is publishing online, not from my actual pro basketball career, ironically. And then when I stopped playing ball, you know, I had already been talking about mindset. I've been talking about mindset a lot because a lot of people asked me about it based on my background of how I had to kind of fight my way into the sports world. So when I stopped playing ball, I realized I had a, a sizable chunk of my audience from people who weren't even athletes, but they liked the way that I talked about mindset and strategy and accountability and self-discipline and those kind of things. So I started really focusing on the non-athletes in my audience. And those are the people I serve to this day. I have a company called Work On Your Game Incorporated. What we do here is really, I work with mostly professionals, entrepreneurs, mostly non-athletes on strategy, accountability, and really just taking complex issues and simplifying them in a way that we can break them down and get things done. Basically, that's what people come to me for is have that kind of that kick in the butt to get things done. So that's where we're at today. Yeah, a lot of us need that
0: kick in the butt. So you're doing good work on that front. So I'm interested to go back to where this first all came from. Obviously, I know you got started when you were realizing the mindset was a key part for you becoming a professional athlete. But what was the first moment in which you started to think, this is going to take me to the next level? Because there'll be a lot of people who are genetically gifted. A lot of people are really talented, but they miss that mindset aspect. So where was your first exposure to that? Was it someone? Was it something? Was it a book you read?
1: Honestly, Elliot, it wasn't anything in particular. I think it's something that was always in me. I think the seeds were always in me for that because I'm a person who, even back in my teen years, I always would visualize my future even when I had no real reason. There was nothing tangible in my current world that said I should be visualizing this success because it was nothing I was doing in the moment that said I was headed there. But I'd always been doing that. And I didn't know I was visualizing until later. I got into my 20s and realized, oh, that's something, I've always done that. I thought everybody did that. But I realized it was kind of a, a thing that people had to learn how to do, but it was something that always came naturally to me. And it wasn't until around maybe the year 2000-ish. And I was born in 1982, so I'm, I'm 40 years old now. So that was when I was just starting college is around that time that I really started getting into reading personal development, what we now call personal development. They used to call that human psychology, but now it's it's its own category. And that's when I really started reading it and realizing that there was a whole genre of material that people made specifically for this material that you can take in is going to make you a more valuable and higher quality person. i had always been into that kind of stuff, but I didn't know it was a thing. So I didn't really get into this stuff on purpose, Elliot, until I was around 18, 19 years old. But I had always, my mind had always been in that direction. So to answer your question, was there anything, it was really just my competitiveness. I'm just a, a competitive person, which is why I was naturally gravitated towards sports. And, and but I mean, you could take competition and you can take it to business, anything else. But I just had the, the genetic gifts to take it to the sports world. So that's how it worked for me. And then through the sports world, I came across this other part where I can use my mind because, you know, as an athlete, it's only so long you can make money off your physical. At some point, you're going to have to use your brain. So I was doing that, you no, know, in the middle of my athletic career. So when it was time for me to get out of sports, I was able to easily transition into just using my mind. Yeah, that's super interesting. And it's a part that usually people will catch up with at the end. But actually, what you did was do it
0: before. And you had that foresight to make that smooth transition, which is great. And on that note, obviously, the personal development world is so well-versed and well-populated now. Maybe too populated in some senses. When you first started, and there there kind of been that much information out there. So where did you go for for your information? And what have you seen change over the years that's been good and bad in the personal development world?
1: Man, so the first place I went was... The bookstore. Now, this is back before Amazon was Amazon. Amazon was out, you know, since the mid nineties, but I didn't know Amazon. Back then, this is when physical bookstores existed. And there's still a few of them. Barnes and Noble, I think is the only one that's still, the national one is still around. And then you got the local bookstores in every city. But I used to go to, um, there was a B. Dalton books, there was Barnes and Noble, there was a Borders bookstore. So I used to always go to those bookstores and I would just wander around the bookstore and it was two specific areas of the stores that I would always go to. Of course, the sports section, I like looking at the sports books. And then I'm look at those human psychology books. And there was a book that I came across around the year 2000. It was uh, Robert Greene's 48 Laws of Power, which is uh, still my favorite book to this very day. And Robert is my favorite author. And when I came across that book and I was just looking at the because anybody who's read that book, have you read that book, Elliot? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Okay, so you know, on the back of the book, he has a list of all the 48 laws on the back of the book. So I remember looking at those laws, and I'm like, I knew that book was for me as soon as I read it. I said, Okay, this book is all about and it's not about other people. The book is about you, it's about the reader. I was like, This is the exact kind of book that I'm looking for. So when I read that book, I, this was exactly what I wanted. And just studying Robert's stuff, all the books that he's written. I think he has five or six to this day. And I think I got one here that I haven't even finished. Daily Laws, his latest one. It was basically just pieces of his previous books. But that is really where I got got started in personal development. So that's one of the people I went to. And also to tell you another way that I learned about personal development was around 2000 and maybe 2002, 2003. I'm on campus at college. This is around the end of the spring semester. So it's around this time of year, but back then and on a bulletin board. Now this is again, back when if you wanted to get information, you had to actually see people in person. You had to physically get the information. This is not, not on the phones, So I'm walking through campus and on the bulletin board, people can just put up, you know, they can put something up there like, hey, here's gonna be a party, or you wanna get a part-time job, et cetera. Somebody had this bulletin notice up there that said, do you want to make some extra money from home as a college student? No, unlimited income potential, et cetera, et cetera. I was interested in that. I was interested in making some extra money. I'm a broke college student, even though I was playing sports, you know, athletes need money too, right? So I responded to this ad, and it was just a guy had his phone number. You just clip off the little strip of paper. You call the phone number. The guy says, all right, I'm going to have a meeting at this building at this time on this day. So I go to the meeting. Turns out this guy was in network marketing. And nowadays, everybody would probably predict that if I just told you that story. But back then you didn't know. So I go to this meeting. This guy tells me about it. And I go back home to Philadelphia because I was at school at Penn State University. It was about four hours away from Philly. And I go back home to Philly and I go to a couple of these network marketing meetings. Now, I didn't stay in the network marketing industry, but there are two specific things that I got from that experience that were very important for me even to this very day. Number one is in those meetings, those guys were introducing me to concepts of entrepreneurship and business concepts that had not been taught to me in any schooling. Now, mind you, I'm a student in college at this time. I have a business degree from Penn State and the entrepreneurial principles that they were teaching at that network marketing meeting in a hotel, they did not teach that on my college and I have a business degree. So they didn't teach me any of that stuff. So That's number one. And number two, at those meetings, the leaders who would be speaking on stage, they would always tell the audience at the end of the meetings, like, hey, when y'all go outside, there's a table out there and the people are selling books. Y'all need to buy those books. They would name drop these people who I never heard of. They would say these names like Tony Robbins and Jim Rohn and Brian Tracy and Napoleon Hill and Zig Ziglar. I never heard of these people. And when they would drop those names, I was like, who are these people? But what they were introducing me to was personal development. So those two things, things, Entrepreneurship and personal development. And uh, Robert Kiyosaki is another one. I had to mention that name because that book, uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, is really what really, really got me thinking. Because when I was in college, Elliot, I knew I wanted to play overseas basketball after college. I didn't know how I would do it or know what the process would be, but I knew I wanted to play ball. But I also understood that two things. Number one, my basketball career might never happen because of the background that I was coming from. It would be an uphill battle just to get a contract. And number two, even if it does happen at some point, my basketball career is going to be over, right? Because basketball players retire by, you know, by the time you're 40, you probably already been retired for years. So what are you going to do the rest of your life? Who are you after the ball stops bouncing? So I already knew that I was going to need to do something else after basketball, no matter what you, how great you are in basketball, you don't want to be age 40 and done, right? There's a whole lot of life left to live or age 30 and done. Most athletes are done by 30, let alone 40. So it was already planted in my mind The seed was already planted in my mind through reading. and Robert Kiyosaki, that when I get done with basketball, I'm going into the entrepreneurial world because I had seen the adults that I grew up around, my parents, no other adults in my neighborhood, et cetera. They had traditional jobs and they were good people, granted, but they were always at work. They talked about work as if it was a necessary evil. They were not excited to go to work. They talked about it like something they had to do, not something that they got to do. And Despite the fact that they were always at work and they talked about it as if they weren't excited about it, they never had any extra money. So I'm like, I don't want to sign up for this. I don't want to do that. So I knew that I wanted to do something different than what they were doing. So when I read Robert Kiyosaki and I, and I start, when I went to those network marketing meetings, I'm like, okay, this is a different way of making money besides what I see all these other people doing. I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to do this because that way I know it doesn't work. I don't want to be them. So I'm going to be them. So whatever they're doing, I'm doing that. So I already knew I was going into entrepreneurship again. As with basketball, Elliot, I didn't know how I was going to do it, but I knew that I was going to do it. And I tell people in my audience all the time, even to this very day, that what you want and why you want it is more important than how you're going to do it. When you know what you want and why you want it, you'll figure out the how later on. And it's the exact same thing I did in basketball, the same thing I did in business. I don't think I even answered your question. <laughs> hey, no, you did in
0: many different ways. But what I was going to say, was fascinating about it is how hard it is compared to what we have today. I mean, thinking about you having to physically go to a bookstore or a library, I can get any of Robert Greene's book on Audible now. And same way with like the networking events, I can go to a virtual mastermind, but you actually had to pull this clip off dial a number, go and meet these people. So I think if there's any takeaway from that is to realize how much is at our fingertips now. And like, it's so much easier compared to what it was back then, which is quite interesting to hear about. And obviously you did then work out the how, obviously discipline, confidence, mental toughness, personal initiative. Like those are the four things that underpin your concepts of working on your game. And what I find interesting, I was thinking, okay, where do we start with this? Because you had that internal knowing and then I realized what underpins... All of that, maybe the four concepts is self-awareness. Like we need to know in the first place that we might not be disciplined. We might not be confident enough. So how do people go about understanding in the first place that these are things that they're able to grasp, attain, and then work towards what they want to? Because I think people to begin with, before they can even work on discipline and confidence, they need to know that they need to do it in the first place, which I think is probably categorized within self-awareness.
1: Right. So for me, when I was in sports, the number one thing people would say is confidence, I want to perform at a higher level because sports is a performance based thing. You're getting out there performing with a bunch of people watching and it's very clear at the end of the the day, whether you perform well or you didn't. Because we look at the stats, we look at the scoreboard. Did you win? Did you lose? Did you make the team? Did you not make the team? Did you get a contract? Did you not? When it comes to professionals like the type of people who I hear from most often today, it's consistency. It's consistency and accountability. Those are the top two things. Now, both of those, the thing that they both have in common, whether it's confidence or consistency, is they're both rooted in discipline. And here's how. I'm always told athletes this, and I tell people this this very day, that discipline builds confidence. The most confident people that you know are usually very disciplined people. Why is this? And a lot of people don't ever make the connection between the two. The reason why very confident people are usually very disciplined is because what is discipline? Discipline means if you just ask someone who might not even think that they're disciplined, if I ask them, what does discipline mean to you? They probably say something like doing the stuff that I know I need to be doing all the time, sticking to my routine, sticking to my schedule, doing the right things when I know I need to be doing them, pushing myself to do the work that needs to be done even when I don't feel like doing it. Well, what does all of that lead to? If you're doing that on a consistent basis, what does it lead to? It leads to you trusting yourself. It leads to you believing in your own word. And it leads to you having a high level of self-esteem simply because you know you're doing the things that you're supposed to do for yourself without anybody telling you to do it. That leads to confidence. Really confident people are basically they're very self-efficient and they know that they can tell themselves to do something and know they're going to get it done. So that's how discipline leads to confidence. Now, when it comes to consistency and accountability, usually people can see the connection between that and discipline. Usually people can see that one, even though they might not use the word discipline. But consistency is I mean, what does it mean? It means doing the same things over an extended period of time with very little variation. That's what consistency is. You know exactly what you're going to get. And this is what people expect from any type of professional because the definition of professional is a person who does something as a full-time occupation that they make money from. But my definition of professional that I add to that, not replacing it, but adding to it is a person who goes out and performs every single time, regardless of how they feel. Uh, You don't have to feel good to go out and do your job when you're a professional. For example, I'm at home right now. We just got a couch delivered to my place and the guys who delivered that couch, who knows how they felt today? Maybe they had maybe one of the guys arguing with his wife last night. Maybe one of the baby is sick. Maybe they don't even like their job. But when they get on the clock, they know they got to show up and do their job. Otherwise, they're not going to get paid. You think about uh, LeBron James. Does he feel like playing every single night? Probably not. But if you watch him play, you wouldn't know which nights he didn't feel like playing most of the time because he's going to be consistent in his delivery every single time. Or you think about it a, a teacher or a personal trainer or you on this podcast. I'm sure that sometimes you turn on the mic, you don't really feel like recording, but you have it on the calendar you know you have to do your job. And that's what a professional is, a person who gets the job done every single time, even when they don't feel like it. And discipline is the root of being able to pull that out of you. And it's really about telling yourself, I'm going to do something and getting it done. So those top two things, confidence and consistency, both are rooted in discipline.
0: And why is it that we understand that when it comes to athletes, we get that they need to manage their nutrition and they need to have everything dialed in. But when it comes to entrepreneurship and people in the boardroom, it's not so well known. These people are staying up late at night and they're basically fueling themselves on caffeine. Whereas when you look at the sporting perspective, it's completely the opposite way around. So why is it that it's only really applied to athletics versus the everyday person?
1: No, that's simple. That's because in sports, your job is based on what you do with your body. Whereas in in the business world, for the most part, the way that people look at it is not 100% true. People look at it as I'm just doing it with my brain. So somebody could be 100 pounds overweight, not in great shape. They can't even walk up a couple of flights of stairs without being out of shape. But If they're really smart and they have this great software and they're making money, well, who cares? Why do I need to be in great physical shape? doesn't matter. In that moment, it doesn't really matter to them. So I can understand why people look at things like that. We know that that's not a good idea, but I can understand why people look at it like that. And then where does their motivation come from to tap
0: into those things if they know they can do things whilst being overweight, whilst being out of shape and not eating healthily?
1: Oh, that that would have to be on a person-by-person basis because there are some people out there who are, there's some software engineer out there right now whose company is doing a million dollars a year and he's 350 pounds and five five and he doesn't care. He doesn't care that he's 350 pounds because he's made a million dollars right? and his company is getting bigger and bigger every day. He just hired some new staff and he's doing great. Business wise, he's one. He's the smartest guy in the room. He doesn't care about his health now. If he ends up having a a heart attack or some type of physical challenge, he goes to the doctor, and the doctor says, "Hey, you don't do something in the next twenty-four months, then you're not going to be around to see your grandkids grow up." Then he might do something. So that motivation it has to come from that individual person, and they have to figure out their reason to do something. But there's a lot of business people right now who never go to the gym, and they feel like they're doing fine, quote unquote. So who cares? Yeah, I think it's... What I'm trying to get to is the fact that I
0: get a lot of clients who come to me at that point and they wish they came sooner, but they didn't realize it. So I'm wondering if there's any way in which you can make people realize the importance of it sooner before they have to. Because that's what people... That's what you find. Even I saw one of your Instagram posts yesterday is that you were saying 98% of people will not do the work, basically. Whereas this is what I'm interested in. is like, why is it there is such a little percentage of people that will? And how can we the data so that it actually comes to more of a 70-30 split? Or do you think it's just not possible until we really know our reasons fundamentally?
1: Well, I think it's a combination of both. I don't think it's an either or thing. I think people do need to have a reason, but I think, let's say somebody like yourself, if you're looking for those people, or let's say you see that guy whose software company is doing great, but he's way overweight, he needs to do something for his health. And if you talk to him, he'll probably admit it. He doesn't see it as an urgent need right now. So for somebody like you, your job is to make it urgent for him. So that would be for you to try to plant those seeds in his mind. How can I make this an urgent need for this individual? And I would think just figuring out how to make it emotional for them. So emotional being, you're not going to be around to see your grandkids, or here's another guy who was in your position doing the same thing. And look what happened to him. He didn't make it past no age 55 because he had a heart attack and he passed away. So it's figuring out some way that is going to get their attention. For some people, it's logical for most people it's going to be something emotional. And usually trying to avoid pain will move people to action more than trying to gain pleasure. So how can you frame it that if you don't do something, you're going to experience massive pain. That's usually enough to get their attention. And then you take it from there and you sell them what you sell them.
0: That's uh yeah, that's a great segue. And quite often I try to make people's reasons very visceral. Like I think a lot of people think about turning up to the gym is just going out and training. I'm like, literally every rep you're doing is the difference between you being able to walk your daughter down the aisle or not, and like getting it to that level because of surface level, it doesn't seem like that. But when you actually peel back all the layers, that gym session is contributing to being able to stick around for your grandchildren and stuff like that. So I think that's a yeah, really, really key point. And on that note, what often succeeds that is going to be what working hard and I'm hearing a lot of narratives about working hard versus working smart. What's your take on hard work versus smart work?
1: I think you need a combination of both. I think uh, our society, especially Western society, and especially in America, we have you know, a lot of hustle culture and people showing you how hard they're working. And hard work is a good thing. And it's, for the most part, a necessary thing. But hard work alone isn't the entire meal. You know, it's something that I like to say is hard work is to your success what salt and pepper is to your hamburger, right? It's, it's good to have and it'll make it better. But hard work by itself is not the whole meal. And there are a lot of people, I feel like they're still teaching this in, in schools, That if you just work hard, you're going to be successful. I was on LinkedIn last week and this college kid, I had posted some status update about no hard work. You don't get paid more for working harder. And this college kid tried to challenge me on this. And I'm like, all right, you're in college. And this, they must still be teaching this incorrectly on college campuses. But the thing is, you want to be smart about what you're doing so that you can kind of apply Pareto's principle, what some people know as the 80-20 rule, so that you're focusing on the things that produce the highest return on investment. And then once you identify those things, then you work harder on them. So to give somebody an example, let's say you're running some advertisements on you know, Facebook or Google, you have 10 different ads running, you identify which ones are producing the highest return on investment, let's say the top three ads, then you shut off the other seven, and then you put all your money into those top three. That's the hard work is when you put more money into the ones that are working, but you should and go hard on all of them because all of them are not producing the results. So, it's figuring out the smart part is asking yourself and analyzing what is actually producing the outcomes that I want. So, if we deconstruct that, then Elliot is first of all figuring out what does working mean for you? Because I get a lot of people, I don't know if you get this question because in the fitness world, at least you can see your results. It's much more cut and dry than if you're talking about something that's mental because mentally you can't see it. You have to feel it and people have to describe it to you. But the first thing people have to ask themselves is what does working look like? All right, what is a positive outcome? Whenever I'm working with a client or a prospect, I ask them, right, we work together for a year. Right, what do you need to be able to say that would make us working together a success? And everything they say, I write it down. I say, okay, so in a year, you want to do one, two, three, four, five, those things will make this make sense. That will make this investment make sense for you. And I get a confirmation, then we can move forward. But I need to know what working looks like. And a lot of people don't know. Unfortunately, there are a lot of really skilled, really talented, hardworking people who are out there working every day, but they don't even know what success is for them. So they are doing something. They say, well, I don't know if it's working or it's not working, whatever they're doing. I'm posting on Instagram every day and I don't know if it's working. Well, my, well, what is working for you? What has to happen for this to be working? Do you need to get a certain number of likes? Do you want to get a certain number of followers by the end of the month? Do you want people to click on your link and they buy something? What is working? And a lot of people have no idea. And it's amazing to me that so many people are out here working, but they have no idea what it means for something to be working for them. So what is working? How do we measure it? And then try things, try as many things as you want to try. Every idea you see, go ahead and try it. And then Look at your results. What is actually producing the outcomes that you want? Do more of those things. And the things that are not producing outcomes, get rid of those. The challenge for many people, especially entrepreneurs and solopreneurs, is that they get so emotionally connected to their ideas and their habits and the things that they want to do that they will completely disregard actually measuring outcomes so that they can just focus on doing what they want to do. And those people, unfortunately, are very uncoachable. (laughs) and I can't help them because they don't want to actually focus their work on results. They want to focus their work on, they want to get results, but they want to do it their way. And I'm like, well, do you want to do things your way? Do you want to do things in a way that actually produces results? And until somebody gets to the point that they're ready to actually focus on results, there's only so much that somebody like you or me can even help them. And how do you get people to get to that place? Is it simply asking the questions? Is it getting them to do
0: journaling? Is it them to do meditation? Because I think a lot of people will be just be, like you said, going through things for 20, 30 years without even realizing that they don't even know what they're working towards. So how do we get people to the place where they actually realize what they want to achieve?
1: at some point they have to have a conversation with themselves. Like, I don't care how good of a salesperson you are and how great your programs are and how many before and after stories you can tell, how many testimonials you put on your website, how great your service and your sales page and your sales pitch is. At some point for somebody to buy anything from me or from you or anybody else out there, Elliot, that person has to have a conversation with themselves where they say, this is something that... I want and need. This is something that I need now. And it's something that I can do until they agree to those things. Now we can help to get them to that point, but they still have to say it to themselves because what I say to a person that I'm working with is not nearly as important as what they say to themselves. Even if it's something that I told them, I can be the most articulate person in the world, but until that person takes the things that I say and they say it to themselves, it's not really going to make an impact. They had to take my words and they had to repeat it to themselves in their own mind. That's when it really starts to have an impact. So that's our job is to give them something, everything that we put out here, that they eventually take something that some nugget that they can take with them that they're going to remember and that that's really going to be the thing that changes. And it goes right back to that 80-20 rule. So. I do something like go give a keynote speech. I talk for an hour. Uh, by three days later, most of the people in that room are going to forget 97% of what I said. Which I don't mind because as long as they paid me, I'm good. I gave my speech. But the thing is, that 3% that they remember, I want that 3% to be the thing that's going to cause them to go do something different. And that is what I mean when I keep referring back to that 80-20 rule. Most of the things that we do, most of the things we hear, most of the things we read, most of the things we say have very little impact on our bottom line results. But is those few things that have the impact. Those are the things that it's our job to get those into the heads of the people that we want to change and people that we want to serve. And it's everyone's job to figure out what are those things that are going to move us to action and going to help produce results for us. And those are the things we got to focus on.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And you'll probably get people who get started on this, they get really engrossed with this world. And patience is probably a big thing. It's something I see in my work a lot. So I'm intrigued because sometimes with maybe like working on your mindset, working on your business, something like that is going to take me 5, 10, 15 years. And let's say you're in the weeds, you're in the journey. How do you know if you just need to keep going? Because there's a lot of people who will see the grind, the hustle culture, memes and all that and think, okay, I need to up my game a little bit. But there's probably a lot of people who are just working hard and working smart. Anyway, how do you know if you just need to keep going? Or if you need to reinvent, if you need to look into your systems, is it based on progress or what would you say was the key
1: there? Yeah, it's a great question. And sometimes it's an kind of existential question of life. Like, how do you know if you are a it's kind of like me when I was trying to make it in basketball. How do you know if you're a person who is going to be at your star in the making? You just need to keep going because you're just going through the rough part and eventually you're going to become a hero and you can tell everybody your great story and by all your guts and glory. Or are you a person who is this is not going to work at all and all you're doing is wasting more time the more time you spend on this thing? The ultimate answer, if this was a we were in an elevator and I had to give you an answer before I get off the elevator. The answer is it depends on the end of the story. And we won't know until we get to the end of the story whether you are right or wrong. So for me, for example, as a ball player, ended up that I was right because I made it in basketball. But for all the other players out there who had the same lead up as me, but they didn't make it, they didn't become pro, they didn't play in college. Well, they ended up being wrong, but how do we know? We won't know until the story's over. So for someone who's in the middle of the story, how do you decide if you should keep going or not? And the situation is really, I give people, it's kind of like I give people a combination lot because a few things you want to look at. Number one, the most important one is mentally, can you still see the vision? So when I was playing ball and I'm getting cut from the high school team, or I had some setback in college, or I get out of college and I'm trying to play pro and I didn't get an opportunity at first. And my parents are asking me, what do you want to do? I say, I want to play ball. And they're asking me, well, what's the plan to do it? And I didn't really have one. You no, know, Going through all those setbacks, in my mind, could I still see myself making it? Could I still see the vision of this is going to happen? I can visualize it in my mind. As long as you can still visualize yourself becoming a success at that thing, even when it's not working, then you keep going. But as soon as you can't see that vision anymore, that is not coming up in your mind anymore, then it's time to walk away. That's like one number of the combination lot. Another one is even when you're facing setbacks and things are not quite working, are you still excited to go back and figure out why it's not working and figure out what to do about it? So for example, these days, if I'm running some ad campaigns and I see that I'm spending a hundred dollars, but I'm not getting a hundred dollars in ROI, am I like, damn, I might as well just quit running ads. I might as well shut down my business. Or am I saying to myself, all right, these ads didn't work let me figure out why they didn't work. Let me try some different ads or a different audience or a different targeting or a different something so I can figure out how to make this work. Which question are you asking yourself? Are you asking yourself, should I quit? Or are you asking yourself, how do I fix this to make it better? And so I can make it work. Which one are you asking more often? If you're asking yourself how to fix it, keep going. If you keep telling yourself, well, maybe I should just give it up, then maybe you should give it up. You know, sometimes I get people coming to me. Actually, I've been on, I've been publishing online for like 17 years. Oh yeah. So I often would get people coming to me saying, well, Dre, I'm thinking about quitting. You know, I'm thinking about giving it all up because I've had this happen, this happen, that happen. I've tried this, tried that. None of these things are working. I don't know what else to do. I'm thinking that it might be time for me to quit. And sometimes people just present that to me. It's not even a question. They just make a statement to me because they are expecting that I'm going to be this motivational guy that's going to get some pep talk to tell them why they shouldn't quit. But sometimes I say to them, you know what, you're right. You should quit. You know, you should walk away. Maybe you should give it up because if you're already saying all of these things to yourself, because by the time they say it to me, they've already said it to themselves a hundred times. If you're saying this to yourself, maybe you should quit because I'm not going to be around to talk you off the ledge every single time you feel like quitting. All right, if you're talking yourself to this point that you are thinking about it, then maybe you should. So that's the second question. And the third one is when things are not working, are you still excited to kind of get back to the game? All right, do you still see yourself as making this thing happen? Are you excited to kind of come back and really figure it out and make it work? So you want to look at all three of those questions. Do you still see the vision? Are you asking yourself a question about constructively? How can I fix this? And are you excited to get back to the game and you know, figure it out even when you just got knocked down? Are you excited to kind of like a boxer? You you got knocked down, did you still want to get up and keep fighting? Or are you just going to stay laying there on the mat? And there's nothing wrong with either one, whichever side of the conversation you're on, because everything ain't for everybody. Not everybody needs to be in every single space. So if you're finding yourself thinking about quitting in one space, that might be a good thing. So you can walk away in strength from that thing. So now you can walk into the thing where you should be. The thing that you should be doing. And there's a lot of people out here these days, Elliot, who are trying to force themselves into something where they don't belong. There are a lot of people who think they're going to be an athlete who don't need to be athletes. People who are trying to be entrepreneurs who don't need to be entrepreneurs, people who want to write books because they see other people writing books and they want the ego boost that comes from writing a book. But they don't really have anything to say that makes what they want to say book worthy, but they want to write a book. Everybody doesn't need to do everything. There is some space for everyone, but a lot of people are trying so hard to force themselves into a space in which they don't belong that they never get to the space where they do belong. And that's so good. That's a great framework to utilize. And on that note of people not really
0: knowing where they belong or what they really want, Obviously, a lot of this is probably exacerbated by social media and having such an insight into people's lives. Obviously, when you got started, I guess the fortunate part was that social media was nothing compared to the beast that it is today. So how do we navigate the modern nature of social media and focus on ourselves versus what everyone else is doing? Because I think a lot of people won't even realize that what they want is not what they want. It's what they think they want because they've seen it. So how do we navigate that?
1: Uh, You're 100% correct. So I grew up in the 90s. By the time social media became social media, which was, what year would you say that was? 7 08-ish. Yeah, I was going to say the iPhone came out around 2008, so it probably started popping off from then. Yeah, so around that time. So by that time, I was already in my mid-20s. You know, so I grew up in an era where if you wanted to speak to a person, you had to wait till you... You had to call them on the phone or you had to wait till you physically saw them in person. Now I was already a full-grown adult by the time social media came around. Good thing is I was still young enough to adapt to it. You're yeah, you're one 100% correct about that. The era of let's say somebody who was born in 1992. Let's say they were maybe 10 10 years younger than me, or maybe even later than that, let's say 98, something like that. So they've grown up their entire lives from their teen years on, they've had social media. And what is social media really? On the business side of things, social media is a way for these companies, whoever own these platforms to take your time and attention and monetize it. That's basically what social media does. That's what Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, that's what they do. They take your time and attention and they monetize it. You think social media is quote unquote free, no, you're paying with your time and attention the most valuable things you have, more valuable than your money. And that's how they are able to charge People like me who advertise, we pay for people's time and attention. The social side, the user side, social media is a way for all of us to be in everybody else's business. That's all it is. All right. Because what do you post on social media? You're just telling people about your life, about your business, what you just did, how many products you just sold, where you're going on vacation. Here's my kids, here's my wife, here's my new car, here's my dog, here's where here's what I'm eating for lunch. That's all social media is. Is you telling people as much of your business as you want to share. So As users of social media, as consumers, what are we doing? All we're doing is looking at other people's lives or at least what they want us to think their lives are. Now that's all it is. So all of that preface to answer your question here. Yes, you're 100% correct. Is that because we're looking all day at what everybody else is doing, we get it planted in our minds unconsciously, subconsciously that we want a car. We want to go on vacation to Tulum. Uh, for some reason, I see it. Tulum's in Mexico, right? Why, why is everybody going to that's Tulum? The spot. You know, what? I never heard of Tulum until like two years ago. You know, I never heard of Tulum until like 2019, but now it, every time I look up, somebody's in Tulum on vacation. So I and not even I played basketball in Mexico. I told you this before we started recording and I didn't know that Tulum existed, but all of a sudden it has been a thing. But anyway, the whole point is now we're looking at everybody else's lives and we start to think, oh, I want to do that. But we really don't, like you said. So I could imagine you know, somebody like me, I'm 25, 26 when social media comes out. I know it affects me on some level. I'm more conscious about it. But imagine somebody who was 10 years old when social media came out. This is ingrained in their brain because they're still developing as a person. They have these things going into them. So they are growing up. And I've read that you get somebody around eight years old and you start putting stuff in their mind, they're going to grow up and believe that for the rest of their lives. And there's nothing you could do to get it out. So I can only imagine what it's doing to a kid. So If I have a child, I'm not letting them touch social media for many, many years. I'm not giving them a smartphone. If I do, I'm controlling everything on their phone and they're not accessing anything I don't want them accessing because... They can really start to program, literally program their mind to believe certain things. So people are being programmed these days who are much older, the exact way that you said. And I don't even remember what your question was. Tell me the question again.
0: It was more so about how we we basically make sure that what we
1: want is what
0: we want and not what we think we want based on social media. Okay. But I appreciate that preface.
1: (laughs) Yes. So the thing is what I tell people, and this is what I do personally is a very simple concept is I don't pay too much attention to what other people are doing. I don't really give a damn about anybody else's business. I don't care uh, what your kids look like. You went on vacation. I don't care. I don't care what you're eating for lunch. I don't care about your new car. And the only thing I use social media for is to post my stuff and if something happens to be like when I open Instagram, whatever's at the top of the feed, I see that. All right. If it's not at the top of the feed, I didn't see it. So anybody who's watching this, if I'm following you on Instagram and I never like any of your pictures, not because I don't like you, it's just cause I'm not scrolling and I just didn't see it. And I don't look at your stories and I don't care what you got going on. I don't I'm not interested. I'm on a diet when it comes to other people's stuff. Why? Because social media is designed to, as soon as you click on one thing, it is engineered, scientifically engineered to get you to click on the next thing. All they want to do is keep you using more of your time on that app because that's how they make money. They are incentivized to do it. And they have really, really smart people who are smarter than me and smarter than y'all who are listening to this and watching this to keep you on that app more than you are designed to get off of the app. (laughs) That's the whole thing. It's them against you. Their science against your willpower and their science will beat your willpower nine times out of 10. So it's being on that information diet, not paying attention to what other people are doing, focusing more on yourself and getting people to watch your life instead of you watching their life. That's pretty much what you want to do. The only time you look at other people's stuff is if you're doing it for a specific purpose of research. So for example, Elliot, I think you said you looked at my stuff to get ready for this interview. But other than that, you shouldn't be looking at my stuff unless you're doing some business research, something that you can use for yourself for your own purposes. That's the only reason I look at anybody else's stuff is for my own business purposes, for my game. But I'm not looking at anybody else's stuff for entertainment purposes because the internet became the new TV. And you know, back in the days, Elliot, how old are you? I'm 27. Seven. Seven. 27. Okay, so so I'm a I'm a whole generation older than you. And when I was growing up, they used to call the TV the idiot box. I don't know if anybody used that phrase anymore. It's like our parents, yeah, our parents and grandparents used to use that phrase. Like not even my generation says that, but my parents used to say it is the idiot box. And they said, I think people still say this: like, successful people have big libraries and unsuccessful people have big TVs. The thing is, the television, they used to say people spend like eight to fourteen hours a day, eight to ten hours a day watching TV. And all that's happened is the phones have replaced the TV. And people are instead of looking at TV shows, now we're looking at TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook. And the Internet is way better at keeping people's attention than the television was because now the commercials have been cut out or now they're 30 second ads instead of commercials on TV. And it's so engineered because we know who each individual person is. The smartphone apps know who you are personally. So what the ads that I see are different from the ads that you see. Right, So when I'm on TikTok, I'm going to get shown certain things that they think I'm going to keep watching. And you're going to get it shown a whole different set of material based on your activity. So they can target things much more specifically. So they're even better at it. So instead of trying to fight it, which is what most people aren't even thinking about this stuff, but if you're trying to fight it, you're going to lose because those engineers are smarter than you for the most part. Or you can just not put yourself in a position strategically to where you don't have to fight it and try to use willpower because willpower is not a good strategy because eventually you're going to run out of it. So that's a long answer to a, a simple question.
0: <laughs> I love the, I know I love all the information because it's a topic that I'm fascinated on. And a couple of things on that. And the first reason why the internet is so much more powerful than TV is like not only is it curated, but when you left your home, you left the TV behind. Now you bring it everywhere. It's in your pocket. It's whenever you want it. So eight to 10 hours before can be unlimited access now, which I think is probably one of the biggest concerns. And I love the concept of the information diet. I think we all understand that marketers are trying to get us to eat unhealthy foods and, you know, make foods hyper palatable and decadent so that we consume them and we eat more of that. And we know the whole concept of Domino's trying to make themselves appealing. These food brands trying to make themselves appealing, but I don't think people have clocked onto the fact that that's what social media is doing as well. So I like the concept of the information diet because if people won't look twice at you, if you say, Hey, I'm just looking at watching my diet. But if you say you're watching your information diet, no one will really know what you're talking about. So I think that's a really good concept to introduce to them. And on that note, what's your take on the metaverse. Do you know much about that?
1: Tell me what it is and I'll give you my take.
0: So it's the, (laughs) it's the concepts of what meta quote unquote Facebook and all of those apps are creating where you are going to be living in this virtual reality world, right? So basically taking the concept of augmented and virtual
1: reality and placing you inside that world. So do you know, do you know a lot about that? No, I don't know a lot about it. I've heard the phrase, I remember a couple of months ago when they first announced they're going to call themselves Meta and then they could just kind of basically start now they're not Facebook anymore They're Meta. I mean, I run ads over there, so I guess I'm part of the Metaverse. I guess I'm in it somehow, somehow in this matrix. I don't know a ton about what it's supposed to be. And I think they're probably just going to do it so gradually that unless you're thinking about it, you probably won't even notice that it happened. And one day we're going to wake up and be like, wait a minute, what happened here? But that is something that I did talk about uh, before I pass back to you that I think in the next 10 years, there's going to be this kind of reckoning where everybody's going to say, wait a minute, what did we do with these social media apps? We click this button that says, I agree to the privacy. I agree to the terms and conditions and I gave up all my privacy. I gave up all of my attention. I gave up all of my time. Now they know everything about me, even though it was quote unquote free, now we want it back. And now everybody's there's going to be this big campaign that people want their privacy back. It is not going to happen. And everybody's going to wonder, how are we so dumb that we didn't notice this? I think that's going to happen in the next 10 years. I hope that that's something about the metaverse, but I think that's what's gonna happen.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's terrifying, if I'm completely honest. I think that we're not gonna have, a lot of people think we're gonna have this collective consciousness awakening where we're all gonna become super enlightened and we're gonna be able to, I'm not that optimistic. I think we're just gonna travel down that route. We're gonna get ourselves into this metaverse and we're going to disregard our bodies and the real world even more. I was watching a video of Mark Zuckerberg and Lex Friedman. It's a really good interview. And he's basically saying that they're optimizing things like Zoom, right? So if we were having this conversation, we would basically feel like it's more real. And I was like, that concept is great. I would love to feel like this was a more in-person conversation. But the problem is, is when you make something so real... It's not that people don't just say, I'm going to use this for the purpose that I was using it before. They're going to be like, I'm going to use this 10 times more. Take Uber Eats, for example. People haven't just said, I'm only going to use Uber Eats for the time that I wanted to take away. They're now saying, oh, Uber Eats is way more convenient than cooking. So I'm going to order it all the time. And I think the idea that they're selling is that people are just going to replace their normal technology usage with the metaverse, with being within this virtual world. Whereas I think if you make it such that it's better than the real world and easier, there's no way back. I don't think there's any way back. Imagine like trying to... There are some people who will get those phones that basically do nothing but text and call. Those are the outliers, right?
1: Right. So basically, if Mark Zuckerberg has his way, then they will basically own you. They basically... Your entire life would be owned by them. And then if you do something they don't like, they could just basically shut you down.
0: Well, you can't shut someone down when they're living in the physical world to a degree. But if you're living in their virtual world, then, you know, they do have some ownership of you. So, yeah, I think I think it's an interesting concept. And it's it's terrifying how not many people, I mean, including yourself to, be, to a degree, you're not even too sure what it is. And I don't think enough of us know. And I'm like, we're just like blindly going down this route. But maybe, maybe I'm the crazy one. Maybe this is the direction we should be going in. No, but-
1: that's their point. No, you're the smart one, but they're going to call you crazy because you're pointing out something that they don't want you to tell everybody else was actually happening. So, no, you're actually the smart one. But for now, they're going to call you crazy because you're going against the grain. But that is what they I think they want to do it exactly the way I explained it is that I don't quite know what it is. I know it kind of exists, but it's going to be so gradual and their scientists are so smart that we're going to walk right into it and not even know that we walked into it until it's too late. And it's a one-way path. It's a one-way path, I'm telling you all now. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So
0: we're going to take a hard left because I'm really interested in your perspective on this, but it's, it's completely unrelated to what we were just discussing. Masculinity. It's one of those things right now that seems to be in a very precarious position. We don't know what being a man really means compared to what we did maybe 20, 25 years ago. And some of the traditional values of being masculine and being male are branded as toxic, as branded as not virtuous whatsoever. So I'm keen to get your take on what does the modern man look like? And what's your take on masculinity as it stands today in 2022?
1: No, oh, man. Well, I've talked about this a lot, actually, on a couple episodes of my podcast, but it was uh, probably 100, 200 episodes back. But it's something that I've seen is it's been a a big attack on masculinity over the last few years, simply because, man, this is the whole conversation. We could do a whole nother hour on this, is that. I think a lot of men have abdicated their responsibility as being the leaders that they were assigned to be and I mean assigned to be by higher beings, whatever your higher being is, doesn't matter your religion, you don't even have to have a religion, is that every religion, I don't think there's a single religion out there, anyone who's religious, even if you're not religious, that says the woman is in charge and the man is supposed to follow the woman. The man is the person in charge. The woman is in position, not necessarily following or subservient, but supporting of the man. The woman is to support the man and the man is supposed to be the one in charge. That's the way. Healthy relationships. Let's say heterosexual relationships. The man is the one in front, and he's doing what he's supposed to do as a leader, as a protector, as a provider. And then the woman is in support of the man, not in a negative way, but in a supporting role. It's kind of like Scotty Pippen supported Michael Jordan. All right? It's not a negative space. Uh, you're just helping out the person. It's like a executive assistant supports the CEO. That's the way it is supposed to be. And I think a lot of men have abdicated that responsibility, and a lot of women have kind of stepped up and we've had this, we've had a lot of you no know, feminist movements or support women. And the other day was national women's day, or it was yesterday or th- from whenever we're recording this is fine. It's fine to have a women's day. We can celebrate women. Men need women the same way women need men, but there are certain roles to be played. Every team has roles. Now, I remember I was talking to a basketball player years ago, I was training this guy. And one day we were just sitting and talking and he was expected to his senior year. He was expected to be the leading scorer on the team, score all the points. He had not had that. That role before. And he was feeling kind of anxious about it. Like, Jerry, I don't know if I can play this role of scoring all the points. And I explained to him, well, listen, the guy at the end of the bench has a role too. His role is to clap for you during the games and to get water during the timeouts and to practice hard and practice and make sure you're ready for the game. And the assistant coach, their role is to make sure that the coach knows what's going on and who has how many fouls so they can take people out of the game when it's necessary. And the equipment manager's role is to make sure the uniforms are clean and that you have clean towels to dry yourselves off during the timeout. Everybody has a role. The rebounder has a role because if he doesn't grab rebounds, you can't score points. The point guard has a role because if he doesn't pass you the ball, you can't score your 30. You're just a role player, just like everybody else. Your role might be more visible, but it is a role nonetheless. So everybody has a role. Even being a leader is a role. Being a supporter is a role. Being a person in the background is a role. And when it comes to masculinity, I think a lot of men have abdicated that responsibility for whatever reason. A lot of women have stepped up and spoke up a lot, very loudly, and kind of, I think, guilted and shamed a lot of men into believing, well, we need to... And this has been a this is a whole bigger conversation that there's a lot of people who have shown up in the last few years and said, well things have been imbalanced, quote unquote, in a certain way for one group over time. So now we need to balance it out and we need to give the group that has been behind, we need to put them in front so we can balance things out from how they've been historically. But that's not the way that it was set up in the first place. It's kind of like, it's like if Scottie Pippen popped up and said, well, Michael Jordan scored all the points all those years. So now I need to score more points than him so we can balance it out. Like, No, that's not the deal. That's not the way it's supposed to work. And, and ironically, Scottie Pippen kind of did that a few months ago with his book, but that's a different conversation <laughs> for a different day. But everybody laughed at him when he did it. The whole point being that when it comes to masculinity, I think a lot of men don't know what masculinity is. I think a lot of men have been raised in feminine worlds. They've been There's a lot of men who've been raised not by men. They don't have masculinity men around them. They've been around a lot of women. They've been around a lot of feminine energy. And there's a lot of men who have been dipping so far into their feminine energy that they don't know what it means to be masculine. We've had a lot of movements that are very feminine in their energy. Not Again, not in a negative way because every human has masculine and feminine energy within them, but a woman is naturally more feminine. A man is naturally more masculine. And a lot of men have just, I don't think, even know how to be men. And There's a big attack on masculinity going on right now. And if the feminine has its way, then masculinity will be completely destroyed. But hopefully people who are, I'm assuming you're one of these people who are really thinking more about masculinity and want to uphold masculinity are going to beat that back. And I think it's very necessary. And I'm intrigued to get your take on those
0: people who are in that position right now. They've grown up in largely feminine energy. They don't really have any masculine role models in their life. Where do we start with regaining the masculinity that's been lost along the way?
1: Well, the first thing is they have to understand what their natural role is and what their natural position is and where they actually belong. Like this is the role that you're supposed to be playing. If people don't have a baseline understanding of what their role is and what their job is actually supposed to be, well, of course, they're going to go astray. This is a a law of thermodynamics, I believe is the fourth law of thermodynamics is entropy. And what entropy states very simply is that when there's no law, there's no order. When there is no structure, when there's no organization, when people don't have a system and a path and a plan to follow, you get chaos. I mean, you work in the fitness world, Elliot. What happens when someone doesn't have a plan for working out? They get out of shape. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. When someone doesn't have a meal plan, what do they eat? They eat anything. And then they end up gaining 30 pounds. All right. When someone doesn't have a system, when there are not routines and habits in place, and when there's no structure, you get chaos. That is a law of thermodynamics. It's science, right? And aren't we supposed to be following the science over these last few years? Uh, So this is science. that When it comes to masculinity, men need to understand- What their role is as assigned to them by their higher being, by just being a man, there is a certain role. It it says in spiritual texts that the woman was made from a body part of the man. So that that makes the woman naturally a supporter of the man. Again, not in a negative way, which means, man, you need to step up and play your position. If your position is scoring 30 points a game, you can't score 20 and say, well, everybody else has scored the rest. No, it is your job to score that 30. It's not a privilege. It is your job. It is your responsibility to do what you're supposed to do so that everybody else can play their role. If you don't play your role, everybody else can't play theirs. If Michael Jordan doesn't score the last points at the end of the game, then everybody else on the team can't do their job because there's no structure. Nobody, Everybody's not following the structure. So that's what men need to do is first they need to accept that their role as being a man is to be masculine. So what has to happen is they have to be informed by people who understand it and who can get through to those people because you got to get through to somebody to get them to listen to you in the first place. And once they understand it and accept it, then they can start stepping into the position that naturally belongs to them. In which they will feel naturally better because they're doing what they naturally are supposed to be doing. It's kind of like if you're treating your dog like a cat, or the dog is going to be going crazy because it's not doing what it naturally is supposed to be doing. So when you put it in a position to do what it naturally does, it does that job better. I love that answer. And you're right. It feels innate. I think when you tap into it, you're like,
0: oh, this was in me all along. And it's just about stepping into it, but realizing, like you said, that it's your role and it's your duty. So just a quick final question on this one. Do you see any good, male role models in the industry, in the modern world at this moment that we can maybe model, we we'll look up to. So I, I know you mentioned Robert Green as an author that we could probably follow some practices of. Is there any books, any role models in the industry that you think would be worth looking towards if that someone doesn't have a male role model in their real life?
1: You mean when it comes to masculinity? Yeah. Masculinity mainly. Oh man. There are so many. There's a uh... And there are people who talk about this. This is a guy named Garrett J. White. I don't know if you heard of Garrett. I'm not deep into his world, but I've seen him speak at a couple of conferences. As a matter of fact, it's funny. A couple of years ago, I was at a conference, right? And he was speaking and he's walking through the aisles while he's talking. And he was talking about how he was messing up in his relationship with his wife. And he saw me and I had this hat on. And he saw the work on your game on it. He said, let me borrow that hat. And he put it on his head and he explained to the audience, hey, I needed to work on my game. And everybody laughed. And I got the clip. I still had a clip on video. I meant to post it on Instagram. I haven't posted it yet, but I still have that clip. But he's a guy who talks about masculinity and kind of owning that role. His whole business is based around that, as a matter of fact. Again, I'm not deep in his world, but I have a book of his and I've seen him speak. And he's one guy that talks about it Uh, Jason Whitlock is a guy who's a sports writer, and he talks about masculinity a lot. Man, there's a guy named Delano Squires. He's a writer. He talks about masculinity. There's a lot of people out there. I haven't been thinking about it so hard right now, but there are... uh, Tony Robbins, I think, is a guy who would have some good stuff on masculinity. And even if you go back into history, there are men who've talked about it. Seneca... And he's from way, way back in the days. He is into, he talks about masculinity, somebody like Napoleon Bonaparte. And being masculine is not necessarily about being aggressive. It's just about understanding your position as a man and being who you're supposed to be. Another guy is named David Dita, D-E-I-D-A. I don't know how old David is. Have you read his book? Yeah, Where the Superior Man. Yeah, it's so good. Yes. Yes. That's a book that I thought of. I don't even know what his age is. He might be old. He might be dead. He might still be alive. I have no idea. But I read his book and I love that book. But man, there's a lot of stuff out there on masculinity. As a matter of, I need to look up some stuff because I don't have a lot of references for you off the top of my head, but there's plenty out there. No, I appreciate that. That
0: was uh, really helpful. And we'll have to come back and do a round two on this complete topic in itself one day. But Jerry Baldwin, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And if people want to follow your work and keep up with everything that you're doing and work on their game, where can they find you?
1: Man, well, I'll tell people two simple things. On social media, Instagram is where I'm most active because I use the stories function. I post on every platform every day. The only thing I'm not on actively is TikTok, but I post on every platform every day. So Instagram, my name is Dre Baldwin there, so you can follow me there. And I will get people a free copy of my book if they just cover the shipping. Can I share that? Of course. All right. So it's my, my newest book is this book right here. It's called The Third Day, The Decision that separates the pros from the amateurs. So this is all about that discipline, that showing up every day, doing the work when you know you're supposed to do the work. This book explains how to create strategies to be disciplined, not willpower. So this is not a rah, rah, screaming in your face, drill sergeant book. How bad do you want it? It's not all that hype up. That is not what this book is. This book is about the strategies that you put in place so that you don't have to force yourself to be disciplined. It happens naturally because you put processes in place that all you have to do is follow the process. The process provides the discipline for you. I'll give you this book for free. All you got to do is go to thirddaybook.com and I'll, I'll give you that link. So wherever in the show notes, it'll people can just click it. Thirddaybook.com. The book is free. All you're going to do is cover the shipping. And that's again, thirddaybook.com.
0: Perfect. It'll all go in the show notes. Thank you for your time today, Dre. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for having me, Elliot. Great conversation.
0: And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcast from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.